Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be here this morning to worship with you all. Uh, it, it is a joy. Uh, Jimmy and I, we go way back, uh, many decades ago when we were just starting out uh, ministry together and to see how the Lord has uh, been with us, uh, using us in different ministries and church contexts is, is a joy. Billy and I, uh, who is not here, obviously, we go back to Covenant Seminary days and uh, had tremendous respect for him. He was a better student than me, and so uh, he made that respect easier. And uh, to have known Mark, Elder Mark, at uh, seminary, uh, not too far from here. All this to say, there are a lot of different connections to this church, and it is a joy to be able to come and to be with you, to worship with you, and to bring a word this morning to you all. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, and we're going to talk about what it means to be holy, to be holy. And I know this is not a very popular subject in the church today. It sort of comes with its own baggage, doesn't it? But the Lord calls us to be holy. In fact, I would say our mission to the world has everything to do with us being holy, not only as individuals, but collectively as a gathered community to commit ourselves to the word, to becoming like him in our moral character so that we become a foretaste of what God is currently doing and what God will finish when Christ returns so that we can say to the watching world, come and behold our God. And that's what we are, the body of Christ. When people say, if I see Christ, I will believe, I hope you can with enthusiasm and confidence say, come and see Christ and his body right here. Well, let's read the text together, and we'll pray and dive right in, shall we? Therefore, preparing your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we come now and we bow our hearts before your word. We know that your word is bread, it is water, it is life, it is everything we need and long for, and we come as beggars. We ask that you would feed us. We know that you don't treat us as beggars, you treat, you treat us as children, and you're eager to set before us a feast so that we might receive your word, and by receiving your word in faith, we can be made alive as your people, and we ask that you would do this work now. Come and speak to us, spirit work in our hearts, apply these truths in a fresh way to our hearts, we ask in Christ's name, amen. Back in 2017, the New Yorker ran an article on President Chester Arthur entitled, When a New York Baron Became President, in the case of Chester Arthur, the story is one of surprising redemption. Chester Arthur, unlike his Baptist preacher father, was a crooked New York politician who was skimming off the top as a collector of the Custom House, which at the time was the most lucrative business in the entire federal government. According to historians, Arthur enjoyed the finer things in life. 
In fact, I think he owned like 600 or 6,000 pair of pants. Let's go with 600, that sounds more reasonable. But it was customary for him to change multiple times throughout the day to put his best foot forward. And it was regular for him to host extravagant parties with all the who's and who's in New York and beyond in the political world. Through a series of fortunate and unfortunate events, including the death of President Garfield due to the incompetence of his chief physician, Chester Arthur became the 21st President of the United States of America. And at that time, many in the land wondered out loud as to whether Arthur, this corrupt and party-loving politician, could somehow pivot, shed his crooked ways, and begin to act and become presidential. In this critical moment in his life and in the life of the country, an unsung hero, an invalid named Julius Sand, reached out to him via letters to encourage the new president to the kind of redemption that his father used to preach about. In one of the letters, Ms. Sand wrote, do what is more difficult and more brave, reform. It is not the proof of highest goodness never to have done wrong, but it is a proof of it sometimes in one's career to pause and ponder, to recognize the evil, to turn resolutely against it and devote the remainder of one's life to that only which is pure and exalted. Miss Sand's letters had a profound effect on Arthur. According to historians, after his term, his single term, as the president, Arthur burned many of the papers as an act of both shame and pride, except the letters from Miss Sand. These letters buoyed him through the crucible ears in the White House. In addition to the daily pressures of running the country, he was literally dying from Bright's disease that left him prone to nausea, depression, and severe fatigue. Despite these and many disparate challenges, he brought about much reform in the land. He addressed corruption, supported the civil rights movement, and even vetoed the first draft of the Chinese Exclusion Act. In a similar way, all of us, God's people here today, we have a new office, a new calling. You and I, in Christ, are called then to put aside our old ways and to embrace the new, to take off the old self and to put on the new self, which is Christ. Or in Apostle Paul's words, to become holy, to be transformed from one degree of holiness to another. Or as Peter says in verse 16, be holy as he, our Father, is holy. So today, I'm going to say to those of you who are on the fence of Christian faith, you're visiting here this morning, that this sermon is going to sound like insider baseball, and I apologize for that. But sometimes we need to have some family conversations, amen? And we need to double down on what the Word says, because it's not just about us becoming better church, but it's about our witness to the world. So what is this holiness that the Bible calls us to? We typically equate holiness with morality, as in living the good life. And that's true, but there's something more foundational to that. The primary meaning of the Hebrew word for holy is to be separate or to be set apart. And you see this all throughout the Old Testament. 
people, like the priests, were holy in the sense that they were set apart for the Lord, for His work. But people weren't the only ones holy to the Lord. Places like the temple was holy to the Lord. Things like the table where the bread of the presence was and the lampstand were also holy to the Lord. These places and things weren't holy because they obeyed the Ten Commandments. They were holy because they were set apart for God. And later in the New Testament, we are told that we are saints, holy, set apart for the Lord and His purpose. In other words, all of us who are in Christ by faith, and if the Spirit of God dwells in us, and even this morning you long to live into the truths that you sang about and now you're hearing preached, you are a saint, holy, set apart for the Lord. And it is because we are positionally made holy, we must therefore be practically holy in all we do. In other words, we cannot simply enjoy our status as God's people, made holy, set apart for the Lord, and live as if that is not true. The positional holiness of where we stand before God, justified, adopted, now being sanctified, and one day will be glorified, must bleed into how we think, how we talk, how we feel, how we live. Because that is exactly what God has called us to do. And by doing so and living into that reality, we demonstrate to the world how beautiful our God is and the world to come. So what does it mean for us to be holy? But more so than that, how can we actually do this? Because I think many of us, we understand what it means to be holy, do we not? We know the Ten Commandments. We know the Beatitudes. We know what Jesus taught us and what Paul and other apostles have spelled out for us throughout the New Testament. But we lack hope and encouragement to do this. And this morning, we want to turn our attention to 1 Peter, where Peter now draws us in to say, hey, there are two things I want to remind you of, two encouragements I want to give you as you think about what it means to be holy. Two things. First, Peter draws our attention to the hope of future grace. The hope of future grace. Verse 13, he says, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is this grace? I asked my children, it's my typical rhythm to sort of summarize a sermon the Wednesday of when I get ready to preach to get my children's feedback. I have four kids, 16, 14, 12, and 10, and uh, they're brutal, brutally honest. And they'll tell me if I'm too lame or if I've got too many dad jokes or if some things are too theological and confusing. And so I basically said, what do you think Peter is talking about here? What is this grace? And immediately, without much thinking, they said, Jesus. Jesus. And I said, aha, got you. Because Peter is not talking about Jesus here in verse 13. Read again. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Grace, in verse 13, is this future eschatological grace that will be brought to us when Christ comes to us. Peter is not saying, however, that we ought to therefore make the gifts our ultimate thing. No, we ought to never elevate the gifts over the giver, but 
along with the giver of every good gifts. Or with him, he will bring everything our hearts long for. How often do we sit and reflect on this idea of heaven? So often we're stuck in the trenches of everyday life and the demands of our calendar that we sort of forget that God has made promises and that this glorious world awaits us. And if we could keep the picture of this world front and center and align our hearts, align our lives to reflect this world that is to come, I think it would do us a lot of good. And as a young Christian, I used to think that heaven is basically a place where everything I want would be bigger and better. I love fast cars, and in heaven, I'm going to get the fastest car. I love a clean house, so in heaven, I'm going to have the cleanest house. I love good food, so in heaven, I'm going to have the best of foods. I used to think this, and it used to pull at all my heartstrings, like, man, isn't heaven great? Gonna have the best car, the clean house, and you know, tasty food, and so on and so forth. And then I was introduced to C.S. Lewis, and he totally wrecked my view of heaven. C.S. Lewis tells us that all of these things, the things that we enjoy in life here in the now, are arrows that point to the ultimate enjoyment, the ultimate fulfillment, which is Christ Himself. It's the story of a country that we have never been to, the melody of a song that we have never heard. A clean house points us to that ultimate reality of heaven. A tasty meal points us to the fellowship and intimacy we will have with Christ and with one another when Christ returns. In other words, in heaven, we will have Christ, the ultimate, and therefore we're not going to need the middleman. You see what I'm saying? We're not going to need all these intermediary things to point us to Christ because Christ will be there and we will enjoy him to the fullest and in the most complete sense. And our hearts will find its rest in thee for the first time ever. This is our hope. And this hope that the New Testament offers to us, this hope that the Bible sets before us, is not wishful thinking. It's not, I hope it snows this week so I don't have to go to school. My children do all kinds of things. They flush down ice cubes down the toilet and do these weird dances. I'm like, you have become pagans immediately. Like, what happened to our Christian belief in, in a sovereign God who does all things for our good? What's going on here? You see, we, we conflate hope with wishful thinking, but that's not how the Bible presents hope. It is absolutely certain. Why? Because biblical hope is rooted in Jesus' finished work. You see, when he walked out of the borrowed tomb, he secured our hope for us once and for all. And Peter says to all the believers who are waiting Christ's return, to live with the certainty of this hope. Let me ask you, has it captured your heart? Has it captured your imagination? And is it reflecting your priorities? Are you seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Because that's what awaits you. That's what you were created for, and that's what he's preparing even now. And even though we don't see that city whose architect is God yet, we know it and believe it and long for it in our hearts, do we not? 
And if we live with the certainty of that hope, it will change us. Have you ever experienced how the certainty of a thing promised helps you persevere in the now? My friend, she told me uh, this little trick that she does, and ever since then, I've tried to make it a habit for our family. She says, you know, when I book a vacation, I try to book it way in advance. The plane ticket, the hotel, the car, the vacation package, and everything else. And I asked her why. Because, she says, every day leading up to that vacation somehow feels a little more palatable. You see, when I know that vacation awaits me, when I know that massage session is awaiting me, when I know that the hours by the beach awaits me, then my boss is tolerable. You know that crazy coworker? Hmm, Yeah, not so bad. DC traffic? Nah, I was like, you're lying. There's no way. Nothing, nothing can alleviate DC traffic. But I did this. So not with traffic, but anything I love, anything that I get excited about. And one of those things is Korean barbecue. If you've never been to Korean barbecue, you need to fix that error first. But for those of you who have been to Korean barbecue, you know what a foretaste of heaven that is. And so whenever I have Korean barbecue on my calendar, it really does affect the days leading up to it. The Monday morning madness of getting the kids ready to go to school, not too bad. The Tuesday afternoon traffic here as I try to get home, mm, tolerable. Why? Because of the thing promise helps me to live in the here and the now. It gives me perspective, if you will, and gives me life to sort of buoy above the fray of things. Where have you placed your hope? Is your hope in the grades, perfect marriage, obedient children, success, promotion, the corner office? Where have you placed your hope? You know that these things, they'll all fail. They'll disappoint because they're not big enough to carry you through the different seasons of your life. And Peter says to all of you this morning, set your hope on this grace that will be yours when Christ returns. Practically speaking, how do we then do this? How do we live with this hope? How do we make it our habit to Keep this promise front and center. Well, he says you're going to need more than good good intentions. Again, verse 13, prepare your minds for action. This is the hint. Prepare your minds for action. The Greek word here is to gird up the loins of your minds. Okay? And this goes back to Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, where God instructs his people to prepare to leave Egypt in haste. Be prepared. Okay? Prepare yourself for action. And this is what Exodus 12, 11 says. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. What a picture of what it means to be prepared. Yes, you're eating, you're celebrating something that God has done, but you're not just lounging, sitting back, taking your time. No, you are ready to leave Egypt in any moment. And Peter, remembering that picture, says, actually, this is how you must prepare your mind. Why? Because our mind is the battlefield, and what captures the mind wins the day. That's what spiritual battle is. 
In Genesis chapter 3, all it took was the question, did God actually say? Can you tell me what he said? Do you remember what he said? That's all it took. And so we have to guard our minds for action. Every day, the world is trying to, in it, with its own liturgy, grab our hearts and minds. And if we don't prepare our minds for action, as Peter says here, with the word, in prayer, in community, that we're going to be discipled by all the voices that are out there. So be watchful. Be alert. Take every thought captive in obedience to Christ so that you can live with this hope in your hearts. Second and last point, Peter reminds us not only of the coming grace that awaits us, but he reminds us of the power of present grace. There's something for us here and now. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Here, Peter draws our attention to two of our problems. First, we have a problem with our passion. The old adage, you are what you love, is true. Knowledge and information alone would not get us to the finish line, but affection will. And our hearts, as the Bible tells us, is corrupt, is deceptive. Who knows who can trust the heart? It's an idol factory, as Augustine once said, and it is constantly turning us toward these idols that promises salvation and a good life. We will never say this, but we often bow before the idol of work, okay? idol of fame, idol of power, idol of intimacy, and we say, save me from this miserable life because I, I need something, somebody, something better than what it is now. That's how deceptive our heart is. It has forsaken our God and it has turned these idols into functional gods and we bow before it. The second problem is somewhat related. It's our ignorance, ignorance of the mind. Before Christ, we lived in an upside-down world where we called good evil and evil good. Here's how Apostle Paul put it in Romans 1.21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So we have twofold problem. Our hearts are messed up and our minds are messed up. And that's why as we think about understanding and living into this promise that awaits us, Peter says, yeah, you're going to need a whole lot of grace in the meantime to overcome these obstacles. And Peter exhorts us to no longer conform to the affections of our hearts as before or even to live in the way that our minds function, but to be transformed and renewed in these things so that we can embrace and live into the status as a children of God. But how do we do this? How do we embrace our status as God's children? How do we reorder our loves and how do we renew our mind so that we can embrace the truth, our status, and live as the children of God? Two things, uh, real quickly. First, it's his love for us. It's, Peter is very intentional in, in, in dipping into this metaphor. 
He reminds us that he is our father and we are his children. And without really saying so, he is saying, look, you are known and loved beyond words. Tim Keller famously said, to be loved and not known is comforting, but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. And it's not just Tim Keller and the Christian world saying this, but poet and author Raymond Carver, a non-Christian, an outspoken atheist, this is what he writes in his final poem, Late Fragment, a poem in which he is having a conversation with himself towards the end of his life. It's a very brief poem, and it goes something like this. And did you get what you wanted from this life? Even so, I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved to feel myself beloved on earth. You see, it is the human longing to be known and loved in this way. And when we get a taste of this unconditional forever love, there there I say divine love that we are offered in Christ and his gospel, then and only then can we truly be transformed. It's the only love that will melt our pride, erase our insecurity, and give us courage to live into the new status as a children of God. It's the only love that can transform enemies to worshipers, rebels to children, and it has done that in all of us so that we willingly and joyfully bow the knee before our dad. And Peter says, remember this love. And don't just know it here. Know it here. Live into that love. Experience it. Get a taste of it. Come and see that the Lord and His love is indeed good. And when you get a taste of this love, you will never be the same again. Les Mis is one of my favorite books. And there I say, I know, movies. For those of you purists, you're like, movie? What? Yes, they have those out too. Several of them. But you know how the story goes. Jean Valjean, a former convicted criminal because he stole bread, has been locked away for years and finally gets released. Now a social outcast, he's wandering, wandering the streets of this new world that is very hostile, and he is met with kindness and generosity by a bishop who calls him a brother and takes him in. That very night, despite the bishop's hospitality, Jean Valjean, stole the family silver and ran off to the darkness of night. The next morning, three policemen knock on the door with Jean Valjean in tow. They caught him with the stolen silver and were ready to put him away, put him away in prison for good. And that's when the bishop responds, Ah, there you are. I am delighted to see you. Well, but how is this? I gave you the candlesticks too which are silver like the rest, and for which you can certainly get a lot of money. Why did you not carry them away with your forks and spoons? Remember that movie? That part in the movie? That part of the story? It's love extended, grace extended, and Jean Valjean, he doesn't know what to do. It was the last thing he was expecting, and it just 
hits him at the very core, and he is never the same again. And from that day forward, he devotes himself to demonstrating that same love to any and everyone he can. Friends, we have a greater story than Les Mis, a greater love than the one Bishop extends to a criminal. Christ extends his love to you, to his enemies, those who were dead in sin and trespass. And he did it at great cost to himself. He knows the bitterness of death. He went to hell so that he can claim you as his beloved. And even today, he says your name. It's this love that Peter invites you into and says, remember that love? Live into it. Get a taste of it and let it transform you. And lastly, we'll end with this thought. In addition to the love that is ours in Christ, we also have a lot of promises. And so as we seek to live into that love that is now ours, we must also hold on to the promises that have been spoken to us. Often I take stock of my life and I realize that so much of my resources, whether time or mental capacity, whatever it may be, my resources are spent on securing the very things God has promised to provide. You know what I'm saying? When I pause and listen to the worry beneath the worry, it's usually some derivative of will I have enough, will I be enough, and so on and so forth. But the word of God already says, actually, you are enough. You are a child of God, crowned with glory beyond words. And you're going to reign with him. In fact, you are seated with Christ at the right hand of God even now. Will I have enough? Yes, he promises daily bread. And regardless of what it looks like on this side of eternity, when that kingdom comes, you're going to have more than enough. God has already promised us everything we need for life and for godliness. And our God is not a stingy God. He is pleased to give you the world and the kingdom to come. He is eager to hear from you the same prayers you pray over and over and over again. And he never turns away, but he runs to you with his ears right here next to your lips, listening to every desire of your heart. And his answer to you in Christ is yes and amen. When you pray according to his will, when you pray the very promises that he has made, it's yes and amen. Indeed, our God is faithful. He is trustworthy, and he will make good on his promises. And Paul kind of speaks to this, does he not, in Romans? And this is my translation of Paul's words. If God gave us his son, the most precious thing. Of course he's going to give us everything else. Are you kidding me? But this does not mean that our life here on this side of heaven will be easy and will only be green pastures and still waters. We do live outside of Eden after all. 
it is harsh. Place of pain, brokenness. Just pay attention to the headlines even for a minute and you realize things are not the way it's supposed to be. But even then, he is with us. He's our shepherd not only in the green pastures and still waters of life, but is our shepherd even in the valley of the shadow of death. And you and I only taste the shadow because Christ, our Savior, has gone and faced death itself. And as Spurgeon once said, if there is shadow, there must be light. And that light is a light of glory that awaits us. So as God's people, let's remember the grace that is ours, grace that awaits us, and grace that is real and present so that as we embrace these things, we can then live as God's holy people to declare to the world, look, behold, come and see the greatness of our God right here in our church community. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord, for your community. We thank you for this worship service. We thank you for all of these and many, many more, many more things that you have set in our lives to remind us of grace that is ours in Christ. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see, faith to receive, so that we can be shaped by this grace, be transformed, so that we can truly be holy as your people, we ask. In Christ's name, amen.